Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. Artist Georges Le Chevalier had his first major solo exhibition over 25 years ago, and since then his paintings have been exhibited extensively nationally and internationally in distinguished galleries and museums. As you'll hear, he has lived, studied, and created all over the world and brings a global perspective and sensibility to his work. We begin our conversation hearing about George's fascinating family history, his time in New York City, and how living and creating in North Carolina works for him now. Then we zero in on George's work with Shibui, or simplicity, in his visual art, his creative process, and his life. He combines this concept of Shibui and the culinary artistry of Raleigh chefs to create paintings of visual molecular gastronomy. Check out his website, glcart.com, to see his paintings based on such dishes as Jamaican curry goat, chilled espresso with ginger beer and rosemary grapefruit bitters, paella with shrimp and squid, and birthday cake. You'll hear us talk about food a lot in this conversation, so you might want to have a snack nearby. You'll also hear a few spicy words sprinkled throughout our conversation, so just FYI in case you have little ones around. This was a really refreshing episode with a really interesting person. Enjoy. George, thank you so much for being here. When reading your bio, it becomes immediately apparent that you have lived a geographically expansive life, meaning you've lived and studied and created all of the world. You speak multiple languages. Would you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, um, I was born in Paris, France. My mom is from Puerto Rico, Puerto Rican, and my dad is French. And I, I, I think it's interesting because my background, I believe, is really awesome, but it's really, I don't want to say strange, but it's really unique. Mm-hmm. And here's why, because um, I don't know how two people from such opposite uh, lives came together to create me. Mm. Uh, here's why, because my, my mom is from Puerto Rico. She is from the mountains. She is from a place called Barrio Percha which is uh, near Morois. And literally, Morois is in the middle of the mountains, in the middle of Puerto Rico. If you take a map of Puerto Rico, it's a rectangle. And literally, if you put your finger in the middle, that's Morois. Hmm. And growing up, she lived um, very poor. She had, she lived in a tin, tin roof house. Her dad was, or my grandfather, was a jibarito, un jibaro. And he worked in a coffee plantation. And growing up, she didn't have electricity or water in her house. So part of her daily routines was her and her sister had to go get the water. She, again, she grew up like that. Uh, I know that a couple of siblings of hers died in childhood. So again, it was really, really rough to go to the, to the city. Whenever my grandfather had to go to town, he would take the kids because it was like a field trip for them. And mainly because they, ha- they get to eat something called limber. Mm. Limber is kind of like a frozen fruit juice. It's literally they, they make juice. They freeze it in little cups. 
and they sell it for, I don't you know, growing up, it was a quarter. Mm. No, growing up, I'm having a f- five cents, I don't remember. So, but I love this story because her, my granddad would take the kids, but to get to the town, they had to cross a river. And literally the granddad or their, her dad had to put the kids on his shoulders one at a time to cross a river. Oh, wow. And, and my mom would always tell me like, when the river was too high, they literally had to make a U-turn and come back. And and that would devastate my mom. Mm-hmm. That's like the one like really um, big memory that she has. It's like when they couldn't cross the river. Mm-hmm. Um, after World War II, when the U.S. had Operation Bootstrap, when they helped Puerto Rico, they built many low-income housing complex. And a lot of the people from the rural areas moved to the city um, in, in these housing complexes called Caserios. And my f- mom's family moved to Caserio. Uh, it's called uh, the Caserio was Caserio Las Casas. And now it's called Villa Kennedy. And she grew up in a housing complex in, in a Caserio. As a matter of fact, when I was little, we would spend the weekends there. Mm. And on the other side, my dad's family, it's obviously French from Normandy, but also it's, it's the opposite world of my mom. My grandfather owned a bookstore in Alsace-Lorraine, near the German border. They did move to Paris, where my, my dad was born, but my grandmother was Jewish. Hmm. So my granddad was a World War I veteran. My grandma, again, was Jewish, and during World War II, during the Nazi invasion, they had to escape to the south of France. Back then, it was the free France. So again, it's really, really interesting stories from both sides. Yes. Yeah. And how did these two people come together? No, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I have to know. <laughs> it gets even more interesting because they met in Venezuela. Oh, of course, right. <laughs> of course. Uh, both my parents, uh, they got different jobs that took them to Caracas, Venezuela. In the 1950s, Caracas was competing against Havana as the place to be. Big casino or you know, big buildings, a lot of things going on. And my parents met in Venezuela. They got married in Venezuela. And both my sister and my brother were born in Venezuela. After that, we moved to Paris, where I was born. And then uh, my mom didn't like Paris at all. It's cold. And then we moved to Puerto Rico, where I grew up. Okay. Yeah. And then what? And then you eventually moved to California. Yes. Is yes, that right? How yes. old were you then? I was 13 years old. We moved to California. My dad worked for Air France. And we got he got transferred to Los Angeles to LAX. I went to El Segundo High School. I then went to El Camino College in Torrance, California. And when I was like 20 years old, I got fed up with everything. I grabbed my backpack and left and went to Europe to backpack through Europe for a while. Ultimately, I moved to Spain and I studied at the Academia de Bellas Artes, the Fine Arts um, Academy School in Madrid. Mm-hmm. And I was there for a couple of years before coming back to the U.S. and getting bachelor's degree in Cal State Long Beach. Mm-hmm. So what do you think all of this traveling has, how has it informed your life and your art? Well, my art is a reflection, I guess, of my life. So how it informs my life. Adventures, you cannot plan too much. Things happen. Uh, it creates, a, for me, a bigger humanity I believe in, in humanity, and from my experiences, the people that have the most hate, it's due to ignorance, due to, for me, lack of travel. Mm-hmm. Because it's not that important to have degrees. It's more important to to have knowledge. 
And I think travel brings you first-hand knowledge. It's extremely important. It makes you wise. Mm. And I'd rather have wise people around me than book smart. Mm-hmm. You know? and, and I also forgot to mention, because again, one more thing, um, I did get my master's in New York City. Oh, okay. <laughs> I lived in New York City, and, and I thought it was a great experience. Just because while in New York City, I did get a chance to meet with a lot of um, real big artists. I studied under Robert Morris, mm-hmm. who I studied in, in art history when I was in California. I also studied under a Puerto Rican artist called Juan Sanchez. Um, I, I, again, I got to see and meet a lot of great artists. Uh, where I went to school, it was down the street where Jeff Koons has his studio, so I would pass him all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I met Julian Schnabel at a museum. Um, I would go to Leo Castelli Gallery back when he was alive, and I would see people like Francesco Clemente or Michel Barcelo and, and literally see Leo Castelli. And all these things are, are great because uh, it kind of make my, all my studies real. Mm-hmm. I, people that when I was looking at books, they were there. And I would go to museums and see paintings like The Ladies of Avignon or Starry Night. And this gave me hope in a realistic way that, wow, the art world is real and it's here. I can see it. I can absorb it. So um, I think my New York experience was extremely important. So say a little bit more about what it meant to have access to artists who were well-known and were also creating work. A couple of things that they're people. You know, they're just, um, their farts smell as bad as mine. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) You you kind of put all these people in a pedestal, and then you get to to meet them and to see them, and you realize, like, okay, cool. Uh, They're people. Some of them are geniuses, so you try to learn what makes them Mm -hmm. this. But at the same time, it's a learning experience that changes. It's a different perspective. You know, I think the the biggest thing that a lot of young artists here in in the triangle is that they don't have access to that. You know, we have I, I think we have a great art museum, and we we're starting to get really really great art. But it's not the same. It's not the same to go to a museum and see Picasso, and it's not the same to go and see Van Gogh. It's not the same to go and see you know the great directors, great great artists. And I believe that people should go to New York. Uh, if you're a young, young artist, I think you need to go to New York City for a while, mm-hmm. absorb and see how things are real um, for acting, for, for food, for, for fine arts. I mean, it's such a creative place. I don't know if you should stay in New York because um, it's, um, it's kind of like a casino, I mm. say. <laughs> You go there, and you should go, learn, play, spend your money. But after a while, you need to cut your losses and get out, and then go somewhere else and and, and get everything you you learn out of your system. New York is great; it's energetic, but it absorbs you. Mm. Like I remember when I said that I was going to move to North Carolina, a lot of people were like. No, don't go. You know, if you go, like you're not gonna become, an, you're not gonna be an artist no more. You're like you're crazy. Why? And the more they told me that, the more it was like, okay, fuck you. I'm gonna do whatever. I I became an artist to do what I want, not to do what's expected. Mm. 
um, that's one of the reasons that that I was okay living because I absorbed. I lived there for almost 10 years. I lived there for like nine years. And they were very intensely lived in nine years. Right. So so how did you come to North Carolina then? Well, originally, me and my wife were going to move to Las Vegas. <laughs> Speaking of casinos, <laughs> yeah, <go> right? Figure, yeah. <laughs> um, we were going to move to Las Vegas. And we were in New York City. I don't know. Again, I was there for nine years. We were there for a while. And we wanted to have to come to a place to kind of regroup for a few months. We didn't go. We didn't want to to do the whole cross country experience uh, thing. We wanted to go somewhere, regroup, maybe save some money. Um, Cali- uh, New York City is very expensive, so we thought uh, she had family here, so we came here and stayed with them. And we thought that we could come up with s- some money quickly, so we can cr- you know keep going. The problem is that yeah, life was cheap here, but also the wages, mm-hmm. and also we had to buy a car to go to work. So yada, 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 we extended the stay, yada, 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 we bought a house, yada, 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 it's been almost 20 years. Right, right. So. <laughs> you're, you're planted. Yeah. So I know in our pre-interview phone conversation, you said that at a certain point it would have been unthinkable to be living in North Carolina, but you've been here for a while now, as you mentioned. Why does it work for you? Well, yeah, unthinkable. Obviously, because, um, you know, I was um, from, I, I lived in Los Angeles, I lived in New York City. Right. So it's a very different vibe. Yeah. yeah um, kind of as a snob, as an art snob, I didn't know what. But also it was unthinkable because back when I was in college, there was a senator from, from North Carolina called Jesse Helms. Yes. And Jesse Helms didn't have the highest regard <laughs> to, for artists. And after the whole Maplethorpe, um, thing, I, I, you know, I looked, I literally looked to North Carolina in the map. Mm. And we're like, well, that's one place I'm, I never will go to. And yada, yada, I'm here now. Right. So never say never in life. But that's <laughs> one of the reasons I thought I would never move to North Carolina, just because I had this weird idea that it was an unfriendly place. It, you know, it was, you know, as an artist, uh, it was not the best place to come. But um, I guess I was wrong, mm. because it is nice. And also, with the internet, with websites, with emails, being outside of New York doesn't not feel that bad. Just because I, I keep, I keep in touch with a lot of people. Um, I read magazines. I read reviews in the internet. So in a sense, I'm physically removed, but intellectually, I'm still aware of what's going on. Mm-hmm. That a few years ago, without the internet, that would not have been able to to do. Right, right. So you feel you still feel connected. Yeah. But you have more space now. Oh yes, yes. I have my own studio in my house. Uh, my mortgage it's less than I have ever paid um, in any kind of rent. Mm-hmm. So it, it's kind of weird, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Different makes a difference in the quality of life. Yes, I think. So I want to talk about your work a little bit. Uh, and specifically, I'd like to talk about. The is it Shibui series? Uh, Shibui. Shibui. Okay. So, what is Shibui? Shibui is kind of a hard term to explain, but it's a cool simplicity. And every time I I meet, it's a Japanese term. And every time I meet somebody from Japan, I'm always like, okay, how what Shibui? Can you explain Shibui? Shibui? (laughs) And they always look at me a little strange, like, well, what what is that? What you you know, like, you know about Shibui? And 
it's a deconstruction. You take out everything that's not needed, but it's also a clean deconstruction. Mm. Okay. Um, think maybe Shibui might be a modernist house, kind of a minimalist house. W how I came to this, my paintings uh, a few years ago were very complicated. Um, about 20 years ago, I started painting as a reflection of the digital age. My paintings had a lot of images. I was trying to put as many information as I can because I realized when, when I got my first computer that I was web surfing, I was changing channels in my TV, I had a million channels, and that was even before the smartphones. Mm -hmm. So I was welcoming this crazy activity of information. I, I, as a matter of fact, it's like I liked it. With time, it kind of backfired. With time, all this information um, made me more stressed. Yes. Now, the 100 channels that I have in my TV meant that I literally never finished a show. Like I would start watching a show, the commercials come in, came in, I would start changing. Even now with Netflix, I don't watch anything because I go to my menu and I literally spend like 40 minutes yes. like searching for something to watch. <laughs> and by the time I find something, I'm asleep. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's just... So again, it's like more doesn't mean better. Uh, but in my painting, I was putting a lot of stuff. And I was really, I'm always been really strong with design. Uh, symmetrical design, everything had to match, everything. I mean, I, I would sketch, I would do a lot of work. And what I found was that going to my studio was not, was nothing, it was not fresh. It mm -hmm. was really planned. And this plan was a, was a reflection of, of society, of this all this technology. I mean, like, work would text me in the middle of the night. Right. Um, when I was at work, my wife would text me. So it's always like, you always are in multiple places. And I started to feel disappointed, stressful. And I even, I even stopped painting for a while because I didn't have the joy anymore to go to the studio. One of my greatest joys is food. Mm. Yeah, I worked in many fine dining restaurants. Uh, if I was not an art teacher and doing this art thing, I would definitely be working in fine dining. I love fine dining. I work in New York City under some great chefs. Uh, here in Raleigh, I have also worked with some very strong chefs. So I stopped painting, and what I did, I, s I started reading about chefs, about food, food preparation. I'm an art history freak. And I realized that for the last so many years, I'm always reading about art history. I'm always searching artists. I'm always. And at one point, I kind of learned everything I needed to know. Mm -hmm. I was just repeating myself. I was looking at the same artist. Uh, so I literally scrapped that, and I started looking at chefs, watching food documentaries. That's the one thing in Netflix that I would watch. <laughs> you get you know, to the end. Yeah, the, right? the, the Chef Table series is amazing. Uh, there's a documentary, oh, uh, I forgot, uh, Dreams of Sushi. Um, I forgot the guy's name. It's uh, Kiro Dreams of Sushi. Anyways, he's the top sushi uh, chef in the world. And it's this old man in, in Japan. So I so watching all these documentaries. And pretty much that, it's where the Shibui idea comes from. The, as a matter of fact, the term Shibui, uh, Jiro, that's his name, Jiro. The term Shibui, I took it from an Anthony Bourdain episode because at this time I'm looking for simplicity I'm, I'm like spending a lot of time just thinking 
um, uh, meditating and, and trying to simplify my life, I was watching an Anthony Bourdain episode where he goes to Japan, and he literally has dinner with Jiro. And Jiro has a small restaurant in a subway station, and it's the top restaurant in the world for sushi. And it only seats, I think, like eight or nine people, and that's it. And uh, Anthony Bourdain was talking about Shibui because that's the when you eat his food, there's so much intensity in just one bite. It's just so simple. It's just one piece of fish, and that's it. And and he explains what Shibui is compared to this food. And immediately I'm all like, okay, yeah, this is exactly what I was looking for. It's Shibui. And since then I've just been researching, studying. Right now, like literally, in a sense, food saved me hmm. in my art. Hmm. So Shibui is intentional simplicity? Yes. Or intense simplicity? I, I would say intentional, even though I like that intense <laughs> simplicity. I don't know if you can have that, but <laughs> no, that's what that's, your description sounded like. Yeah. Maybe my next series of paintings will be known as intense simplicity. <laughs> that's really good, though. So talk to me about how you you translated all of this into the work that you do working with Raleigh chefs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I learned in Spain, and that's one of the reasons I went to Spain to study, is that traditionally Spanish painters, they put a lot of texture in their paintings, lots. Uh, the first time I, I painted in school, I literally spent about half an hour just putting paints in my palette and just with a brush, just kind of like touching the paintings mm-hmm. because um, I'm a very physical person. And the physicality of the paint itself was something that turned me on. It was mm-hmm. just like, oh, I really like this thing. So I always been attracted to heavy paint. When I went to Spain, there were some artists like Miquel Barceló or Jose Maria Sicilia, uh, Anthony Tapies, who their whole being is to put texture in the paintings. Um, it comes from an Italian art movement, Arte per- Perverta. So the whole thing is to put stuff. So even in Spain, I was already mixing paints with sand and doing mm-hmm. all these crazy experiments. I mix paints with rice, <laughs> with beans. Um, as a fact, I have some paintings that um, are about 25 years old where I did put chicken bones, hmm. and they're still there, so <laughs> so it's good. I've always put food in my painting, and also, in a sense, it was because I was trying to be painter and cook. I was always working restaurants while I was painting. I was doing my, my paints. So this series of paintings with Raleigh chefs, I wanted to paint about food. With this simplicity, one of the things that have always attracted me was how the chefs, they plate the food. I mean, you can serve the best food in the world, but if it looks shitty, nobody's going to eat it. Nobody's going to want to eat it. Right, right. So it's an art form. And many times I used to work as a runner. Runner is the person in the kitchen who runs the dishes to to the table. So I would literally sit there for hours and see how the cooks would plate this this place, especially in fine dining, is such technique. Mm-hmm. And and it's a technique that, that literally does not get enough attention because um, the good chefs not only have to come up with a recipe, but then they have to be really visual mm-hmm. and do this. I think that's, that's why I like so much food because it's not just about the taste. The chefs that understand food, they deal with smell, they deal with visuals, they deal with taste, but more important, the great ones, they deal with texture. Hmm. 
because usually the food that you don't like is not the taste that you don't like. It's the texture. One of my kids hates tomatoes. <laughs> but it's not he likes tomato sauce. Right. So it's not the it's not the the taste, it's the texture of the tomato that's kind of like disgusting for him. I totally agree. I also hate raw tomatoes. Oh, you do? Yes, oh, and it oh, is completely the texture. It's like yeah. oozy yeah. and little. No, I love yeah. I, I love like that's one thing like uh <laughs> We, I try to grow in the garden is tomatoes just because, um, you know, especially if they're like little cherry tomatoes. By the time I pick the tomatoes in the garden and bring them inside, about half of them are gone. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing when uh, when I lived in Europe and you go to the bakery to get bread, you know, you buy the warm bread and yes. by the time the bread gets home, it's half eaten. That's right. You That's almost right. have to go back. Yeah, I can get behind that, that yeah. bread idea. So when you approached the first chef how did that conversation go did people think you were off your rocker or did it make sense yeah well it was a little it was a little strange and by the way every single chef that i talked to were really great and it surprised me Hmm. Um, and here's why because uh, chefs from my experience they have really strong angry personalities you know like um stereotypically yeah 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 and well there's a reason for this um, most people that work in the kitchen, they literally have some kind of trauma. They have some kind of PTSD. Hmm. Um, and we kind of like look past that. But to work in a kitchen, it's so incredible uh, intense. When you're out there and you're just cooking and you have like a list of things to do and there's people shouting at you, it's literally like a battle. Um, it's really, really intense. I think partly because of, partly, you know, like it, it's intense. Like, and people snap. I seen like chefs. Uh, I had a chef in New York City that we were getting slammed, and he literally took all the orders, <laughs> ripped them apart. Like he grabbed like <gasps> twenty five orders, and he's like, "Fuck this!" Ripped the whole thing apart, threw them up in the air, and just walked out. <laughs> and somebody from behind the line had literally to come, you know, grab like as much as he could and keep the ship floating. You know, uh, so it's really intense. But anyways, now um, I wanted to do a series of paintings uh, based on food. And for the last few years, I've been making paintings based on famous chefs, international famous chefs. And and I said, well, why not do paintings based on Raleigh chefs? You know, And better yet, I have a chance to talk to them instead of picking up a random chef that's famous and picking a random dish, what I wanted to do, I wanted to talk to some of the best chefs that I could find, ask them what dish is important for them, either in a personal matter or in a professional matter, which dishes make them. Mm. And I literally went around different restaurants between two or four because that's the shift between lunch and dinner. You don't want to go there at you don't right. want to go there right? at noon because <laughs> then they literally would scream at you. Right. And I had some pictures in my phone of past work, and I literally went to them. I was like, "Look, this is I'm an artist. Um, you know, I'm doing this series of work. Here's a few examples. And can I ask you extremely quickly what's a dish that's really important for you?" And all of them were extremely nice. All of them uh, were really helpful. All of them were excited about this project, and. Yeah, I think it brings like um, a lot of memories. Mm-hmm. It brings a lot of memories. Um, again, what I discover in life is that when you're homesick for a place, you're homesick for the food, not as much the place. 
I know when I travel to different places that I lived, it's great to see family, but it's almost as great to eat the food that I have not right, eaten. Right. Um, I just went to Las Vegas a few months ago to visit my parents, and they have In-N-Out burgers, <laughs> and I ate a lot of them when I was living in California. So the first chance I could, I went to an In-N-Out burger right. and brought me to a happy place. And that's the thing that food, when you're homesick, you're homesick for food. That's why McDonald's, they target children. Because if, they, if you grow up eating McDonald's, when you get older, that's going to be your happy place to right. go to. Anyways, a lot of people talk about their childhood. Chef um, Hilton from Otto Restaurant in London Raleigh, um, the dish that he chose was curry goat. And he told me about when he was growing up in Jamaica, like the first dish he ever made was a curry goat. And I, I believe it was his grandmother who tasted it. It's like, wow, you know what? You, you have talent. This is really, really, really good. And by the way, I painted the painting for him, for the curry goat. I literally took curry um, and, and made, made kind of a, a paint, paint out of it and used it for this painting. You do that in all of your paintings, right? You try to yeah. use food ingredients? Oh, yeah. In the, okay. Yeah. For Chef Shiri Kumar, and she is a chef at Garland. Um, her dish was um, dai puri, which is this kind of fritters. And again, it brought her to her, ch- to her childhood because this, this food was um, it's street food. And again, it's really special for her because as a kid, her parents were not that crazy for them to be eating street food. So it it had this special uh, place in her life because whenever she would eat it, it was really special. And now like that's the one dish that she remembers. And for this one, I researched the dish and it had tamarind in it. So I, I literally went to the store, I bought tamarind, I boiled tamarind, I made this kind of gooey paste out of it, and then I painted with, with the tamarind. That's really cool. Yes. What reactions have you gotten from chefs when they see your finished work? Um, they're flattered. I know that Chef Serge Falonvigne, he's the chef for Saint-Jacques. And the painting I did for him, it was a salad, um, it's a frise salad with lagdon, which is uh, kind of like bacon. And me and him, we, we literally stood in front of the painting and we talked for about half an hour. So no, he was he was really great. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love Chef uh, because he's very poetic, and he he really is one of the chefs that really get understood the whole painting process. And and literally we we talked uh, for 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 a long time. So so far the the reception from people, the reception from the chefs have, have been really good. What is your painting process? You you have a conversation with the chef, they suggest a dish, and then yeah. what happens? I go online, I research the dish. It takes me a few days. I try to think of the storyline. I know like for Manzana Nolita, he's the proprietor of Rui Bavana. Um, his dish was rice congee. And it's something at first, rice congee is really, really simple, but it has subtleties of flavors. And it's something that for him and his sister is a really important dish. And, and again, like he was great. We, we talked for a while about it. So I tried to research the dish. I tried to find basic things about the dish. Like in his painting, I obviously put some rice. And as a matter of fact, I use green tea, mm-hmm. which works great. <laughs> I love to paint with green tea. Interesting. Um, yeah. In the painting for Chef Alon Vigne, I poured olive oil. 
and that was no good. Okay. Like it, it didn't, it didn't work that good. I also for Chef uh, Jeff Sizer, he's a chef at Royal Restaurant. His dish was a burger. I mean, he was great. Also, he took me to the kitchen and he showed me how he prepares it, this burger. Because when he told me, you know, my dish is a burger, I kind of, I don't say I, I roll my eyes because he's he's a great chef. So I bet his his burger kicks ass. Right. But he took me to the kitchen and he uses this. This method is called sous vide. They put the meat in this airtight packaging, and then they put it in water, and the molecules get cooked. Even though the, the meat feels rare, it's cooked because the molecules are, are cooked. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's really strange because, uh, again, this is something fairly new that has happened since I left working in restaurants. So for his painting, I literally went to the store. I bought a burger that had a lot of blood and juice, and then I poured the juice on the painting. <laughs> yeah, that didn't work either, <laughs> because um, I thought it was gonna be kind of more bloody, but no, it just, it was, there was a lot of water, I guess, in the blood, mm-hmm. so it didn't stain as good as I wanted. So what did you, t- t- now I have to know, what yeah. about this burger painting? What did you do to convey that? <laughs> it's what I do in these paintings, and I call it molecular, molecular gastronomy, and, and if you don't know what molecular gastronomy is, it was started, I believe, in Spain by the chef at Ebouilly. And molecular gastronomy, you take a dish and you deconstruct it molecularly. You can have a bubble on a little spoon. Mm-hmm. And literally when you eat it, it tastes like clam chowder. Like it's really deconstructed. It's really changed into this really simple, small aspects of molecules. So I do this for painting, and my paintings are extremely abstract and minimalist. So maybe one of my paintings have like a black square, a red circle, and two scribbles. So it's not, I'm not painting about food, I'm painting inspired by food. I know that for Chef Angela Salamanca, Centro, the dish that I did for her was uh, chiles nogales. And it's a green chili cooked with an almond white sauce. So literally for the chili, I literally have a single green line. So the paintings don't look anything like the dish and it's in purpose. Mm-hmm. Because I don't want people to come in expecting to see the food. I want people to come in and see this really minimalist, simple painting that has an undertone of food. My first duty is to make paintings. They're inspired by Shibui. They're inspired by food. They're inspired by the Black Square by Malevich. The Black Square is my favorite painting of all times. It's literally a painting of a black square, but I'm obsessed with it. I find this painting sexy. Mm-hmm. It, it, again, it just it makes me dream. <laughs> this painting is it's weird. I'm obsessed with this thing. But my paintings have to be first about simplicity and Shibui. Mm-hmm. And second, it's the inspiration. But the burger paint... I did a square representing the burger. I put a couple of blue strokes representing the water. I mixed uh, some sand with kind of uh, khaki painting because this hamburger, it's cooked on an English muffin, which is made locally, by the way. Hmm. So again, so I tried to represent things, but they don't look like the food. Right. That's, right. Why, it's called, that's why I call it uh, visual molecular gastronomy because you don't know what it is until I tell you. Hmm. Do you have a running list of chefs that you would like to connect with? Yes. I mean, yes and no. Obviously, I mean, um, I have some some chefs that are 
personal heroes of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, David Chang is one of them. I listened to his podcast. And when I was um, in Las Vegas, I got a chance to eat a Momofuku. So yeah, I would love, as a matter of fact, in Instagram the other day, I sent him a question. It's like, which dish, <laughs> which dish is the one that, you know, important to you? He never answered that, you know, they're fairly busy. Apart from him and maybe a couple other people, no, I think it's interesting to get to meet people. Um, obviously, there's some chefs here in Raleigh that are really big that I did try to get a hold of for this experiment. They never replied, but chefs are extremely, extremely busy. Right. That's one profession that literally you have to be crazy to go into. Okay? You're talented and you like to cook, but to work as a chef, to own a restaurant, to own two, three restaurants, it's something that's extremely extremely intense you have to be a really special person to do that so that's why uh, a lot of the chefs i approach <laughs> carefully mm-hmm. just because i know they're extremely busy i don't take pers- nothing personal if they would and nobody did tell me to go fuck myself but if they say so i would not take too personally mm-hmm. just because i know in which kind of intensity they are so we've talked about how you moved from feeling sort of overloaded to this deconstruction and simplicity, then you are now incorporating the food piece of this. Does this have an impact on your kind of day-to-day life, either in the way that you interact with food or just the way you see the world? Yeah, it does. Uh, It does mainly because it takes me away from technology. I don't go to Facebook that much anymore. I go to Instagram a lot, and it's just because it's very visual, and it's my happy place. But the people that I follow on Instagram are chefs and artists. I don't follow many of my friends in Instagram just because it becomes like drama. This series um, helps me, again, just to try to simplify my life. It's really hard for me to paint, Um, and here's why, because it's all about simplicity. I like punk rock. I like energy. I like a lot of things. So when I paint... It's a big challenge for me because I only do a f- couple things and I have to stop mm. because I see the painting is perfect how it is. But as a painter, you always want to come in and keep working. And the first few paintings that I did is in, in this new challenge, the Shibui challenge for me, were complete failures because I did a happy stage, um, something that was really, really proud, but somehow... I grabbed the brush and put one too many marks, Mm -hmm. and I just killed it because the whole point is to learn when to stop. That's the hard part with this series. It's still really hard for me. When I go to the studio, I meditate. I have to get psychologically prepared. I have to kind of lower my heart rate a little Mm -hmm. bit and kind of try to get into this zen. Um, You know, like um, I put incense in my studio. I listen to, you know, really subtle music. Um, because I need to be psychologically prepared to stop. And and it's really, 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 really hard. I want to talk about this a little bit more because it's very intriguing, and I think it applies to many areas of our lives, the art-making piece, but also relationships and um, in many areas. Mm-hmm. Sounds like you are getting better at this, knowing when to stop, or at least getting more in tune with that. Is this... A feeling that you get that you should like this painting is done is it a feeling that you you needed to be more aware of in your body or your mind like how do you now know when um, that's a good question um, 
I don't know, um, in a sense that it works differently for, for paintings. Um, I just do a mark and I go back and think and look what I did. Before I was painting based on design, so things have to be asymmetrical, things have to do. And now with this, with this Shibui, I want to make it exciting. Something that's not symmetrical is very organic. It happens on the, on the spot. And that's what I'm trying to do. In a sense, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld. Mm -hmm. There was an episode where George Costanza, he started doing everything the opposite of what George Costanza would do. <laughs> and that's literally what I started doing. It's like, okay, George would do this. <laughs> So screw that. We're going to do the opposite. <laughs> new George. Yeah, exactly. Does new this. George. Would, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because I was laughing when I was, when I was doing this in my studio. It's like, yeah, I'm like George Costanza. I'm doing everything <laughs> but the opposite. So yeah, it's, it's about simplicity. It's, uh, it's really hard. Um, I need to force myself to sit down more in front of the painting and just take a look at it. When I gesso the painting, I don't gesso the whole thing. And what gesso is, when you stretch your canvases, a canvas is just cloth. And you have to buy something called gesso, which is white paint, which has uh, marble dust in it, so you can protect the canvas. Though usually I would gesso the whole thing on the side, so the canvas looks like a professional canvas. Mm -hmm. Now I don't gesso the whole thing. I leave the edges on gesso, because when you see the painting, you see raw canvas on the side. So that forces you to accept that it's a painting. Mm. Again, old George would have painted the whole thing. New George leaves stuff alone because I want to make sure that, that you see it's a canvas. Right. So again, it's just small changes that I want to, to make to, to force the viewer. Like When you have a painting with lots of things, it's the viewer who decides what they want to see. It's the viewer who looks around. It's like, oh, I want to see this. I like the red here. When you have a canvas or a painting that has only four things, it's the painter who's forcing you. I'm in command. Mm. It's like if you go to Golden Corral and you have a dish of 20 different things, you don't taste anything. I mean, it tastes good, but it's just like this mm. combination of crazy flavors. If you go to Shiro, uh, Jiro in Japan and he gives you sashimi, it's like a little piece of fish, he's in command of 100% of what you're just going to taste. And that's what I want. I want to be in total command when the viewer comes in. The viewer is going to realize the side of the canvas are not painted. The viewer is just going to look at a couple things. The viewer is going to look at the rice texture, and that's it. And either you can stay and enjoy it or you can move on. But I'm in command. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, that's for me the, that's the ultimate challenge. Mm -hmm. So you're offering, you're inviting viewers to experience that same sort of simplicity. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and hopefully, uh, and again, people either get it or don't, and that's okay. As a matter of fact, I like it when people don't get it. I like when people don't like my paintings. If I do something and everybody likes my paintings, um, I feel defeated. Mm. Do you do you think that that indicates that you don't have a strong enough point of view when everybody likes your work, or what? Why do you feel defeated? I believe that there's a difference between an artist and a craft person. Most people think everything is art. If I paint, I'm an artist, and that's BS. Mm. There's a difference, there's a craft. A craft takes many years to do. You can be a great painter, and that's a craft. You can be a great musician, and that's a craft. You took years and years and years and years to, to, to do this. The difference between a painter and an artist, the artists have to ask questions. When you look at art history, 
the great artists are the ones who push the envelope, who piss people off, who saw different things, who, who ask questions. If you're asking questions and you're trying to challenge, people are not going to like it. If I do something and everybody seems to be happy about it, that's not my purpose. You know, I mean, it, it, it's, it's a catch-22 because it also sucks when somebody tells me, it's like, especially <laughs> somebody that you respect, comes up and tells you, well, no, like, this is no good. It's heartbreaking. But at the same time, that's the whole purpose. Like, people that like your stuff, they're bringing their own taste to it. If they don't like it, it's because you're not, you're not up to their taste, mm. which can be good. Again, as an artist, like the whole point is to tell everybody to fuck off and you're doing something new. And when you do something new, that means not everybody's going to like it. And that's great. Again, the, the worst thing that can happen is like, well, the worst thing that can happen is somebody calling my paintings pretty. Yeah. <laughs> like somebody calls my paintings pretty, like like we're going to have a problem. Uh, and, and now you know. If you I'm so paintings, glad I never, never said say yeah. pretty. Uh, that's like for me the and if you call it a picture, if you go if you come up to me and say that's a pretty picture, I'll punch it's you. Over. Like, ah, it's over. <laughs> uh, but but no, it, the whole point is to challenge uh, my my personality, the people I have looked up to, um, artists, chefs, whoever, uh, politicians, uh, guerrilla fighters, whoever. They were not liked by everybody. They had a dream, they had a belief system, and they did it. And if it upsets you, well, too bad. That's not, that's not up to, to them, that's not up to me. If, if you don't like my paintings, if, if you think my paintings are, don't have enough for you, um, that's good, that's mm -hmm. good. Uh, What's next for you? Next, painting, <laughs> like always. Uh, I have a few shows coming up next year. Um, I'm part of a group show for 2020, which is fairly big. I'm really excited about this new this project. I don't want to say it, but but it's probably the biggest exhibit that I have so far. It's a group project in a very special place here in Raleigh. And again, I don't want to, right. but I think of, it's going to be officially announced in March 2019. So <laughs> stay tuned. So painting, uh, traveling. We have some travels coming up that I'm excited about. And also, I'm starting a, a podcast. Yay! Yeah. Um, nothing, uh, not to compete against you, because I think this, this podcast is great. As a matter of fact, you're one of my inspirations. Oh, thanks. So, yeah, I, I listen to your podcast a lot. But this podcast is called Art Punks. And literally, what I want to interview, to talk with people, it's uh, graffiti artists, street artists, sculptors but the whole point of this podcast is to interview people that want to piss people off mm -hmm. <laughs> you know the slogan for for art punks is it's no pretty paintings motherfucker <laughs> uh just because i don't like pretty paintings so i believe like if you do pretty paintings i don't want you in my podcast <laughs> and again it's a podcast to kind of challenge the status quo it's um what i realize is that as a college professor and me being uh, a young rebellious artists who, who like punk rock and, and again, who, who was kind of pissed off when I was younger. There's really no outlet. There's really no podcast for, for young, angry people who are artists. And I know this because um, there's, I only listen to like three podcasts when I'm driving. Uh, I listen to your podcast. I listen to Joe Rogan and I listen to um, David Chang's 
and pretty much that's it. Because I find like most of the art podcasts are, are fairly boring. And in a sense, again, I'm so involved with the art. And one of the things I like about your podcast is you interview a lot of actors. Mm-hmm. And I don't know much about acting, so that's why I like it. But I find that like every podcast I have that are based on interviewing artists, they talk about pretty paintings. Mm. And I don't want that. Like I don't listen to our podcast because of that. And so I want to talk to 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 young artists who are trying to change things, who are upset, who are artists because not because they like the craft, but the, but because they want to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, that's why it's called Art Punks, um, and it's gonna be launched. Lo- it's gonna be launched in 2019. Oh, great! Yeah, okay. early 2019. Oh, I can't wait to listen. That's really uh, exciting. Good. <laughs> so I will include all sorts of links and good stuff in the show notes. Before yeah. we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to touch base about? No, I think, uh, again, I think uh, it was great. And I have to thank you for, for inviting me to this podcast. I'm really, really glad. I mean, I, I'm a listener. And again, it's, it's great to finally sit down and, and talk to you. And for the young people, young artists especially, who are out there uh, painting, just don't give it up. Don't, don't settle. Ask questions. If old people like me don't like your paintings, that's good because you're trying to break from me. You're trying to break from the established artist. So if you're challenging established artists or people don't like the paintings, that's better. Just keep going. Ask questions. uh, Learn things. um, Travel. And eat a lot of food. Mm, Wonderful. George, thank you so much for this conversation. My pleasure. And I'll... I look forward to seeing all of your good work uh, in 2019. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, friends. I want to tell you about Shadowbox Studio, where this episode was recorded. Shadowbox Studio is Durham's flexible, rentable art and activity space. Shadowbox is perfect for video and photo shoots, recording podcasts like this one, and holding movie screenings, classes, spy club meetings, or whatever else you can dream up. Find out more at shadowboxstudio.org. And here's a secret. If you tell them you heard it on Artist Soapbox, you'll get a $25 discount on your first rental. Isn't that awesome? <laughs>